So this is um, War Cry podcast. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Again, we are live streaming during the noon hour Pacific time. My name is Emily Washings. And co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot, Robin Pibashi, and Lucy Smartlowit. Our guest today is Ellie Bundy, who has a lot of information to share with us, something that she's uh, actually shared nationwide, and we look very much uh, forward to that. I'm going to give a few announcements before I turn it over to Ellie to do her introduction and uh, presentation. We do have uh, news about a Kamii man that pled guilty to nearly a year old murder. Travis D. Ellenwood admits to second degree murder in the death of his girlfriend, uh, a Twy B. Black Eagle in 2020. Uh, and the source for this was uh, the um, Lewiston Tribune. Another announcement is that Madison's George court sentencing got moved to uh, early November. So we do have uh, additional information on our Twitter following about that case of the Colville woman that is, uh, was the uh, victim of alleged rape and is now on trial for murder of that uh, alleged rapist. From the Yakima County Sheriff's Department, there is an update on the Legends Casino shooting in Toppenish, Washington. They are still actively looking for Buddy McKenzie. There's a nationwide warrant for his arrest for 750 thousand dollars. They are receiving tips from Crime Stoppers and uh, Detective Reyna is receiving uh, phone calls. Uh, the victim is a 37-year-old Lupe Torres and she is still living. Uh, those are our announcements that I have uh, so far and I'm going to turn it over to Ellie. Please introduce yourself and tell us more about your uh, program. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ellie Bundy. I am the Tribal Council Secretary for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. I'm a member of our CSKT MMIP workgroup, and I am a member of our uh, Tribal Community Response Plan core team, both of which I will discuss in more detail later in my presentation. I also serve uh, currently as the presiding officer for Montana's um, Missing Indigenous Persons Task Force. So I, I have a presentation today. It typically lasts about an hour. I'm going to um, skip some of the longer sections that might not be so relevant to Washington um, regarding legislation, but please feel free to um, stop me verbally anytime if you have questions. Um, I'm gonna pull up, I'm gonna do a screen share so you'll see my presentation, but I'm not um, sure if I'm gonna still be able to see you once I have that up, so. So I have been involved in the MMIP movement since early 2019. And you know, I quickly realized how, um, how you become inundated in numbers. Um, we, we look daily or every time I speak to this topic, how many are missing in Montana today? How many of those are indigenous? How many of those are under the age of 18? How many have been missing for more than a year? What is Montana's ranking in the nation? Which bill do I testify today? House Bill 35, 36, 98, Senate Bill 4. What is the fiscal note for each of those? 
numbers after numbers. And don't get me wrong, well, those are all, those are all um, important things to know. When speaking about this topic, I like to begin with a reminder about why we are here and who we are here for. So with that, meet Jermaine, also known to many as Liz, a beautiful young lady from Dixon, Montana, located on the Flathead Indian Reservation, where she is an enrolled member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes. She is a mother to two young boys. She's a daughter, a granddaughter, a niece, and a friend. She was due to begin planting trees for CSKT on Monday, June 18th, 2018, a job she had done regularly in past years. She was also looking forward to her first summer of fighting wildfires. Jermaine was last seen at 1 a.m. by security cameras, walking down an alley in Missoula, Montana. She was only 23 years old when she vanished. To learn more about Jermaine, uh, you can, in her story, um, this podcast here, uh, Stolen, The Search for Jermaine, is an investigative series by Connie Walker, um, excellent resource um, to get more familiar with Jermaine and her, and her story. I'd, I'd now like to ask you to just consider these numbers. Aside from all of those other numbers I, I mentioned earlier that, that we get inundated with, consider these numbers, 14, 16, 18, 20, 21, 22, and 23. The ages of these young ladies when they went missing or were found murdered. Think of someone in your family who may be that age, perhaps a daughter or a niece. Can you imagine the heartache, the anxiety, the sleepless nights, the constant pit of worry and, and devastation, the desperation? Those thoughts remind me about why we need to continue to do this work, because if it were my daughter, I would be begging for help much like the families of these young ladies are doing today or have had to do in the past. So um, I would just like to continue here with some introductions um, from left to right. Ashley Loring, heavy runner. Ashley loved riding horses, a skill she learned growing up on a ranch near Hart Butte, Montana, located on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation. In high school, she was very active, participating in track and volleyball. After graduating high school in 2015, she attended Blackfeet Community College. She was interested in pursuing forestry and had a plan to transfer to the University of Montana in the fall of 2017. Ashley was last seen in a video clip from a house party where she sat on a sofa amongst others who were drinking and visiting in June of 2017. Many rumors and false leads have been pursued to no avail. The family indicated that law enforcement officials failed to respond immediately, stating she's of age, she can leave when she wants to. She was 20 years old when she vanished. Hannah uh, is a member of the, was a member of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. She's a young mother to a young son, a new mother to a young son. She was a daughter, a sister, and a granddaughter. She was last seen when she left home to drink and watch fireworks with friends on July 4th, 2013 when her car was found on the side of the road with two flat tires and she was nowhere in sight, her family knew something was wrong. Because the police didn't take her disappearance seriously, however, Hannah's disappearance would go almost unnoticed until her body was found at the rodeo grounds on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation on July 8th. By that time, her body was already significantly decomposed. Although her clothes were partially removed, it couldn't even be definitively proven that she had been sexually assaulted. 
though the two members or the two people charged in connection with what happened to her would later admit that rape was involved. When she tried to defend herself against the rape, the couple beat her to death. She was 21 years old. Next, Selena, not afraid, uh, a member of the Crow tribe. Selena loved riding horses, feeding, sewing, baking, and being with family and friends. She loved her horse and was practicing to be a future ladies Indian relay race riding champion. She was also active in basketball and volleyball. Recently, Selena returned to Jingle, dressed dancing at powwows, something her and her sister did together. Selena went missing on January 1st, 2020, and was later found deceased less than a mile from where she was left by friends at a rest area off Interstate 90, a busy highway between Billings and Hardin near the Crow Reservation. She was 16 years old. Authorities have indicated she died of hypothermia based on results of her autopsy, a finding that many continue to question. Henny Scott was a 14-year-old freshman at Lame Deer High School in Montana, where she lived on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation. She was an ambitious girl with dreams of becoming a doctor. On December 7th, 2018, she called home asking if she could go to a basketball tournament and was told no. Henny replied, okay, mom, I'll be home in a little bit. That was the last time her mom heard her voice. The next day, mom took to social media to ask if anyone had seen Henny to no avail. Days later, both parents made it into the BIA to report her missing. And Paula, her mother, recalls that she was dismissed by the police and asked if she had checked with friends and that maybe Henny had a new boyfriend. Instead of releasing a missing persons alert that day, Police did not release one until two weeks after Henny was reported missing. Henny was last seen on December 8th when she walked away from her residence in the Muddy Creek area west of Lame Deer. Her body was found 200 yards from that residence. A forensic examination determined she died of hypothermia and the manner of death was accidental. Her family struggles to accept that cause of death. And Kay Sarah. Kay Sarah stops pretty places played basketball and football, participated in wrestling, ran cross country, and performed in several school theater productions. She had dreams of becoming an actress and a performer. She had a lot to look forward to. Kaysera was reported missing by her family on August 24, 2019. She was found deceased two days later in the backyard of a Hardin, Montana residence, less than a mile off of the Crow Reservation. Family was not notified that she had been found until September 11th, 2019. Law enforcement was unable to determine the cause of her death. She had just turned 18 years old 10 days prior. And finally, um, meet Miss Savannah LaFontaine Graywind. You will hear her name again later in reference to Savannah's act. Savannah, a member of the Spirit Lake Sioux tribe, was excited to start her life. At 22, she had just moved into her own apartment in Fargo, North Dakota with her boyfriend, and they were looking forward to welcoming their first child in September. She had recently started working as a nursing assistant, hoping to fully qualify as a nurse specializing in elder care. She was eight months pregnant when she was abducted and killed, her body dumped in a river. Her child was born during the, during the abduction and survived. A couple who lived in the same apartment building were charged in her death and are now serving life in prison. When I was first introduced to the reality of MMIP, 
it was a story about a young woman and her possible circumstances that kept me going back to meeting after meeting. It is what continues to drive me to do this work. And so as a way to remember those who are missing currently or those who have been murdered, I vowed um, to, to begin every one of my presentations by saying their names and sharing their stories. So thank you for allowing me to do that um, as a reminder about why this work is so important and, and why we do what we do. I would like to share a couple um, short trailers, or I'm just, I'm not gonna share the actual trailer, um, but if you get time and um, have the opportunity to check out either of these, um, Somebody's Daughter and Say Her Name, both directed by Rain. Um, very powerful, very heartbreaking and, and incredibly thought provoking. So if you get the opportunity, uh, check those out. So as you all probably know who are on this call, um, or those who are listening may not know, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Persons Movement um, has garnered significant media attention over the last couple of years as uh, tribal citizens, grassroots organizations, um, all sought to bring attention to the, to the issues surrounding missing and murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives. In tribal consultations and listening sections, uh, tribal leaders, advocates, law enforcement, community members, and others raise concerns about the disappearance of missing and murdered indigenous people. Tribes begin taking concerted efforts to address the issues in their own communities. CSKT was no exception. I'll share a little bit more uh, later in the presentation about what we've been doing at CSKT um, and in hopes that maybe that can help any of you listening as well. So first, I'd like, just like to share a few statistics with you. Um, although Indigenous people make up almost 7% of the overall state population, they are four times more likely to go missing in Montana. And I don't know what the rates are for you in Washington, um, but four times more likely here in Montana. Approximately 1,500 American Indian and Alaska Native missing persons have been entered into the National Crime Information Center, NCIC, throughout the U.S., and approximately 2,700 cases of murder and non-negligent homicide offenses have been reported to the federal government's Uniform Crime Reporting Program. More than 80% of Native American men um, and women, 84.3%, experience violence in their lifetimes. And 56.1% of Native American women experience sexual violence in their lifetimes. Equally disturbing is the fact that homicide was the third leading cause of death for non-Hispanic American Indian Alaska Native women aged one to 19 years of age in 2016 in the United States. I'm gonna first talk about um, national legislation a bit. Um, in November, 2019, President Trump signed an executive order creating the Presidential Task Force on Missing and Murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives. The task force designated Operation Lady Justice convened listening sessions and consultations with tribal leaders and citizens on the scope and nature, nature of the issues. They've been developing model protocols and procedures to apply to new and unsolved cases, established a multidisciplinary, multi-jurisdictional team to review cold cases, and will address the need for greater clarity regarding the roles, authorities, and jurisdictions throughout the life cycle of cases. Also in November, 2019, during a visit to the Flathead Indian Reservation, 
um, attorney general at the time, uh, William Barr, announced that he was launching a national, national strategy to address missing and murdered Native Americans. The strategy provided uh, 1.5 million in funding to place missing and murdered indigenous persons coordinators in US attorney's offices in 11 states. Um, Montana and Washington, both included in those states. The goal was to develop protocols for a more coordinated law enforcement response to missing cases. The plan also included deploying the FBI's most advanced response capabilities when requested, improved data collection and analysis, and training to support local response. The Not Invisible Act of 2019 was signed into law on October 10th, 2020. And the purpose of the Not Invisible Act is to improve the federal government's response to the murder, trafficking, and disappearance of indigenous persons within the United States, increase coordination and prevention efforts between the Department of the Interior, outside organizations, and other federal agencies as appropriate. Additionally, on the federal front, um, on April 1st, 2021, Secretary Holland announced the formation of a new missing and murdered unit, the MMU, within the BIA Office of Justice Services to provide leadership and direction for cross-departmental and interagency work involving missing and murdered American Indian Alaska Natives. The MMU will be able to marshal law enforcement resources across federal agencies and throughout Indian country to focus on cases involving missing and murdered American Indian Alaska Natives. The MMU, in addition to resolving uh, or to reviewing unresolved cases, will immediately begin working with tribal, BIA, and FBI investigators on active cases. So those are a few of the things just happening uh, nationally. And I will talk briefly about um, Montana. And again, this is, I'm gonna skim through this section um, just because it may be different for you in Washington, but I'm gonna to try to hit some of the, the highlights. Um, so Montana is the sacred home for eight federally recognized tribes, each of which have suffered the loss of tribal members who have gone missing or who have been found murdered. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribe uh, is located on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Western Montana and is comprised of the Bitterroot Salish, Kootenai and Ponderay tribes. As of October 26th, we had 8,049 enrolled members, uh, 5,322 who live on the reservation. We are governed by a tribal council of 10 representatives and I serve on the council as the St. Ignatius district representative. The other seven tribes include the Blackfeet, Crow, Northern Cheyenne, Fort Belknap, Fort Peck, Rocky Boy, and the Little Shell. So the state of Montana began focusing on missing and murdered indigenous women during the 2017-18 legislative session when the state tribal relations interim committee requested information on human trafficking, violence against women and missing persons. The bills passed were House Bill 54, um, which addresses the law enforcement reporting requirements. And the bill essentially established that um, Reports for those 21 and older must be added to the nationwide data database within eight hours of a report being made and that, um, that below the age of 21, the reports would be made within a two hour timeframe. 
House Bill 20 um, discusses uh, reporting in certain custodial interference cases. House Bill 21, which uh, is Hannah's Act, and you, you met Hannah earlier in my introduction. Um, this allows the, for the employment of a missing person specialist position within the Montana Department of Justice's Division of Criminal Investigation. Um, and that person works with tribal, local, state, and federal officials to improve, to improve the training um, and response on missing persons cases. Um, our, our specialist is Mr. Brian Frost. Uh, he's been amazing. He works with our state task force and provides uh, monthly updates um, to us on that. The Senate Bill 312, um, known as the LINK Act, created the uh, State Missing Indigenous Person Task Force, and I'll talk about that in a bit. And then Senate Bill 227 is known as Savannah, Savannah's Act, which I'm sure everybody is familiar with. And again, you met Savannah in my introduction earlier. So this last legislative session, we saw four bills. Um, House Bill 35 uh, was for a Missing Indigenous Persons Review Commission. House Bill 36 was a to establish a Missing Indigenous Persons Response Team Training Grant Program. House Bill 98 um, is again, the LINK Act in the State Missing Indigenous Persons Task Force. And Senate Bill 4 was also for the State Task Force, but was a placeholder in case um, House Bill 98 didn't pass. If for some reason, the budget attached with the LINK Act um, didn't pass, we wanted to make sure that the State Task Force would stay in place. So two bills um, both went through. Um, I'm pleased to announce that three of them passed. <clears throat> the only one that did not was the response team training grant um, program, but we'll, we'll continue to work on that front to see what we can do there. We were especially pleased to, to have the task force um, reinstated. The statutory duties of the task force are to identify jurisdictional barriers between federal, state, local, tribal law enforcement and community agencies, to identify strategies to improve interagency communications and cooperation, uh, collaboration to remove jurisdictional barriers and to increase reporting and investigative um, investigations of missing indigenous persons, to identify causes that contribute to missing and murdered and to make recommendations to federally recognized uh, tribes and in the state to reduce cases of missing indigenous persons. And then finally to administer the looping in native communities network grant program. And since our inception in June of 2019, many good things um, have resulted from the formation of that task force. We held meetings with tribal law enforcement agencies and tribal leaders. We held community listening sessions to hear from the public and from families affected. We educated folks and we helped to raise awareness whenever we could. We successfully administered the LINK grant program, which resulted in uh, the reporting network that we have now, and I'll, I'll go over that a bit later. And we also made recommendations to the State Tribal Relations Interim Committee. We provided testimony in support of all of the uh, related legislation that I just spoke of. Um, so it's been a really a good thing um, at the taste state task force level. This is a, a just a current listing of um, who serves on our task force. We do have um, one representative from each 
of the eight federally recognized tribes in Montana. We have a representative from the Attorney General's office, uh, the Montana Department of Justice, who has an expertise, who has expertise in the subject of missing persons. Um, we have a representative from the Montana Highway Patrol. And then we later added representatives from the US Attorney's Office and Indian Health Ser Service. Task Force members were appointed in June of uh, 2019 by then Montana Attorney General Tim Fox. And that's when I first um, became involved with the task force. A Montana Department of Justice um, data analysis project conducted in the spring of 2020 provided several key observations. Um, the one that's pretty obvious now, uh, Native Americans are disproportionately represented among the missing. And this one is really concerning and I'm gonna discuss it in a little bit more detail, but nearly 80% of the individuals that went missing between 2017 and 2019 were juveniles under the age of 18. Of the current 59 who are missing now in Montana, 23 of them have been reported as runaways, 39%. So one request of legislators um, was that when the task force um, started working this year, they asked that we try to work on identifying causes that contribute to missing and murdered indigenous persons. And one of those concerns obviously surrounds runaway youth. The data referenced um, the 2019, 17 to 19 um, juveniles being at 80% is really astonishing. And we felt like it was a good place to, um, to have uh, conversations in, in meeting the goal of um, identifying causes. And so we did begin those conversations. We had a gal by the name of Miss Georgia Cady come in. She was the, or is the executive director of a program called the Tumbleweed Runaway Program. So she came in and spoke with our task force and, and shed some light on the issue. And then the following month, we had a panel discussion with a group of students from a local high school here, uh, Ronan High School. Um, I, met these students, I was doing a presentation in Renan High School on MMIP and human trafficking. And for, gosh, I mentioned earlier, I began this work in early 2019. And when I went to this, this school to provide this presentation, I was really taken aback when after my presentation, about 10 of them came up and said, we had no idea this is, you know, that." We had human trafficking. We didn't really understand MMIP as well as we do now. They were just like us. This could be us. And I was like, yeah, how, how have I been li living and breathing this for almost two years now? And I have a group of Native American kids five miles down the road who are feeling like they had no idea. So um, I had the discussion with them after I've committed to trying to get into all of the schools on the reservation. Um, over this next year to have the same conversation. But I learned a lot from these kids and, um, and they were so interested in learning more and, and wanting to do something. So I asked them if they would be willing to come to the state task force meeting and sit on a panel. You know, it's been, um, I don't wanna age myself, so I'm gonna exaggerate that it's been a hundred years since I graduated high school and, um, and things are different, times are different. The, you know, and in, in my day, we maybe had 
a party up at Mission Dam, you know, or something, and, and people were drinking, but we didn't have the drugs that they have today. We didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones. Um, it's just a much different place for kids today. And so to respect that, it felt like what better way to learn what's going on with these kids than to just ask them directly. So having them come sit on this panel um, was really helpful. And um, I just wanna talk about some of those takeaway comments from that group. Um, as I mentioned, youth in our communities don't know as much as we think they do. And so we need to begin having those conversations with them um, and helping to better educate them and prepare them for if they ever find themselves in, in a vulnerable situation. Um, there are many reasons why kids leave home. Um, the, the obvious is that um, sometimes there's unsafe situations in the home related to drugs, abuse, or, um, and I think that's where we automatically go all, of, all the time, but that's not always the case. Sometimes they just wanna be independent. Um, it may have to do with boyfriends and girlfriends. Um, they, they want to be with that person and, and maybe are prohibited. Um, they might have a poor relationship with a step-parent, step or they simply just need a break. Some of them indicated that they just wanted to um, be away for a weekend, and they had every intention of going back home, but just needing a break. Um, they have a fear of reporting a home situation or the situation of a friend to, to police because they don't want to make the situation worse. Um, they recognize that, although they're their family situations may not be perfect. Um, if something bad is happening, they still think that's their family, that's my family, I don't wanna get anybody in trouble. And they don't recognize the, the dire uh, situation that they may be in, but um, they do want to be included in the truthful conversations. They don't want us to tiptoe around the issue. Um, they want to be told straight up so that they can be better prepared to um, help make meaningful change and perhaps serve as role models to younger kids below them. You know, the, the middle-aged uh, students who really look up to the high school students. These kids are now better prepared to, to be that trusted person maybe for those middle school kids coming up. Um, so this was a really um, great opportunity and I would encourage anybody, if you have the opportunity to work with youth and to engage them in this topic, um, take advantage of that. Uh, aside from the task force learning from these students, they were, they, it built their confidence so much. Um, this photo here is with uh, Governor Jean Forte um, that day at the meeting. Um, but they were nervous. They were sitting in the back of the room and they were so nervous. And I thought, oh my goodness, what did I get these poor kids into? They're, they're so nervous. And they got up there and they were absolutely amazing. Um, the confidence level afterwards, you know, they were, they were praised by the task force members and others who were in the room. And it really helped build them up and to provide kids with opportunities outside of their own school district or their own community is, is a great opportunity for them to grow. So just want to put that plug in to please uh, take advantage of those opportunities as they might arise. So these are our numbers right now in Montana um, as of September 28th, actually. Um, so a few weeks back, but we had 206 active persons cases at 
as of that date. And these change, as you probably know, they change by the hour. Um, but I just wanted to give you a, a snippet, I guess, of what we deal with here in Montana. So 266, 206, I'm sorry, active missing persons cases in Montana. Of those, 59 have been identified as indigenous, um, which makes up 28%. 31 of them are under the age of 21. 31 are male and 28 are female. Um, 23 have been reported as runaway and 20 have been missing for over a year. And I don't know what you see in Washington, but in Montana, the male-female ratio um, tends to stay about 50%, um, a little bit higher um, in September for our males, but um, they're usually right on about 50%. So this is the report, what our report looks like every month when we get this from the missing persons uh, coordinator. Um, we are able to see how many have been missing for over five years, those missing one to five years, three months to a year, uh, one to three months, and then less than a month. Um, so this is provided to us. And then if we happen to know in our communities that so-and-so has been found, then we can work with our law enforcement agencies to get them removed from the list. But um, again, this does change constantly, but just wanted to share with you what this uh, looks like. This is another um, format that we get. These are the just the indigenous persons missing um, by agency. And so you can see our our largest uh, problem area right now is uh, in Billings. So I mentioned earlier in when I was talking about legislation, um, the LINK Act. And so under the Montana Missing Indigenous Persons Task Force, the Looping In Native Communities Act, or what we refer to as LINK, um, was awarded a $25,000 grant. Um, we awarded it to Blackfeet Community College and the law required a $25,000 match um, from the college and AT&T generously donated that to them uh, to meet that need. So with that funding, BCAC uh, created a network for tribal communities to share missing persons data to allow for a safe, easily accessible online reporting portal. In addition to the uh, support by AT&T, a company called Dillon Software stepped in and offered the talent of Sean Dillon, who is the company's president, to redesign and re the reporting portal and database. The new platform is scalable and easy to operate, much like a phone app. The website uh, allows family and friends to complete a contact information form about the missing person online. In the past, Missing persons loved ones have expressed reluctance to report uh, missing individ individuals directly to law enforcement. The reporting system will serve as a go-between for reporting um, in all levels of law enforcement. Once this form is submitted online, an automatic notice will be sent to each law enforcement agency where the report was generated. So BCC launched the portal in November on November 7th, um, and CSKT was the second tribal community added to the network, but we have yet to begin utilization. We actually have training scheduled tomorrow, so hopefully after tomorrow we'll be on board, and then all other tribal communities on in Montana will be um, 
added soon if they if they choose to do so. If you want to view that site, um, it's available at www.mmipmt.com. Um, so I, I threw this in, this is just a resource uh, document that we have here in Montana. Um, it provides information for law enforcement agencies on each reservation. It stresses that every person that goes missing is an emergency and that uh, reporting needs to happen quickly. Um, it provides website information for NICMIC, NamUs, and the National Runaway Safe Line, and then contact information for our uh, missing person specialist in Montana, uh, Mr. Brian Frost. So now I just wanna share with you um, a little bit about how CSKT is addressing MMIP. So as I mentioned earlier, um, CSKT had one of its own, Ms. Jermaine Charlot, go missing in June of 2018. In response to that and in support of others, the Tribal Council passed a resolution in January of 2019, establishing a work group uh, with, the, with the goal of addressing the issue of MMIP. We, it, it was initially MMIWG, uh, and then our work groups switched it to MMIP, which I think has kind of been a common practice. But um, so the hope was that that work group would support pending legislation at state and federal levels, that we would uh, take on the role of providing education and awareness for young people regarding MMIP, uh, safety and sex trafficking, that we would provide awareness to the community on MMIP and its correlation to domestic and sexual abuse, runaways, drug activity, and sex trafficking, that we would collaborate with grassroots MMIP organizations and groups, that we would find innovative ways to intervene in violence to women, provide resources and services to families of missing women, and provide statewide outreach to other tribes and organizations as we were able. So to get that work group established, uh, Shelly Fiant, who now serves as our chairwoman, and Jamie Pluff, who is our CSKT policy analyst, um, and, our, and also our MMIP work group coordinator, they teamed up with several of our tribal police officers and began holding community meetings to solicit um, feedback related to the issue and to find community members willing to serve on the workroom. That is where I first became involved um, is through one of those meetings. I attended uh, one held in Arley and, um, and it kept me going back. It was, um, I mentioned earlier a story from one of the law enforcement officers that has haunted me and, and made me just think, what if it were my daughter? And you can't hear this kind of information and then turn a blind eye. You can't hear it and pretend you didn't hear it and just not do anything. So in any small way that I've been able to help, I've, I've tried to step up and do that. Hence these presentations and, and my involvement with the state task force and our work group here. So this slide just shares our um, the mission statement of our work group. Um, the CSKT MMIP work group is dedicated to educating our communities and providing outreach to other tribes and organizations regarding safety and awareness of MMIP as it correlates to domestic and sexual assault, runaways, drug activity, 
in human trafficking. So the CSKT MMIP workgroup now consists of a diverse group of dedicated folks, um, including council members, tribal police officers, tribal defenders, pastors, social workers, victim services advocates, military personnel, and other community members um, who just have a heart for the work and a desire to see change. Prior to being given the opportunity to be the first tribe in the nation to begin working on a tribal community response plan, CSKT's work group was already active and working hard on this issue. So we had a head start, if you will. We were providing education and outreach through presentations to schools and local civic groups. We held a conference on our college campus, uh, a training at our tribal casino. We set up booths at health fairs, all with the goal of helping to educate and raise awareness. Our tribal police developed a missing indigenous persons policy and a protocol for reporting. And uh, the, the work group then pushed that through uh, newspaper and social media platforms. We had strong tribal council support with at least three council members active in all of our meetings and events. And one of the most critical components is that we had a strong relationship with our tribal police who committed to being involved in our MMIP efforts from day one. We know how rare that is, and we are so grateful to them for being an amazing example of how law enforcement should be engaged. And finally, because of the, the diversity amongst our group of volunteers, we have a strong uh, resource network that can be called upon when needed. So the missing persons protocol was primarily developed to educate our community about how to report, who to report to, what information should be provided in the report, and when a report can be made. Again, stressing that that needs to be done immediately. This document was shared um, in our local newspaper at the and at the uh, public awareness events that we did. Um, so I just wanted to share that with you briefly. So now I would like to talk more about uh, CSKT's tribal community response plan. So US attorney, uh, this is him in the picture here at the time, uh, US attorney for Montana, Kurt Alm, Almy, uh, joined CSKT, uh, to announce the pilot project to create a tribal community response plan targeting MMIP cases. And again, I mentioned CSKT was the first in the nation to have the opportunity to begin working on this plan. Um, and I'll go over our, our schedule here in a moment. So first, what is a tribal community response plan? It's a plan for how a tribal community will respond to a report of a missing person. It's developed by tribes in conjunction with US attorney partners and others. And it's tailored to the needs, resources, and cultures of each community specifically. Um, so CSKT's project goals specifically were to establish a tailored and effective plan to meet our specific tribal community needs, ensure that the plan and process belonged to CSKT, to develop a multidisciplinary approach that integrated community-based organizations, and then to be able to provide um, a meaning, to provide meaningful feedback uh, to improve the guides before their nationwide release. So this is what the template on the photo on the right with the template looked like when it was first brought into us. 
Um, and the guide for developing a tribal community response plan included four components, law enforcement, victim services, uh, media and public communications, and community outreach. So here's where our uh, tribal community response plan began. In September of 2020, uh, we participated in an initial consultation where we made the decision to move forward with implementation meetings. We were introduced to our tribal community response plan facilitator, uh, Mr. Ernie Wayand. Uh, he was the, the missing persons coordinator for the US Attorney's Office representing Montana. Um, we identified our tribal community response plan uh, core team, which consisted of myself, our tribal council chairwoman, Shelly Fiant, our policy analyst and CSKT MMIP workgroup coordinator, Jamie Pluff, tribal police chief, Craig Couture, tribal police captain, Louis Fiddler, um, officer and missing MMIP investigator, Will Mesteth, officer, Vern Fisher, and our communications director, Rob McDonald. Once we established that team, we then uh, defined working groups and by identifying who should be at the table for uh, conversations related to each of those four components that I mentioned earlier. We then begin reviewing existing laws, uh, existing policies, MOUs, and any other relevant documents um, related to MMIP um, amongst all of those engaged stakeholders. We identified organizational and community best practices in MMIP, um, trying to figure out what we were already doing right, perhaps. And then finally, we reviewed uh, the guides provided by the DOJ and identified gaps as it related to all of the items mentioned above, our existing laws, policies, MOUs, uh, best practices, and specific community needs and culture. So um, the Flathead Indian Reservation is very unique in that we have 10 agencies who, re, who operate on the Flathead Indian Reservation. Uh, we have our own CSKT tribal police. They're the guys in the photo here. Um, we have four non-tribal departments. Uh, these are city or town um, departments, Polson, Ronan, St. Ignatius Hot Springs. We have the Montana Highway Patrol. And then we, we also have four counties, all with jurisdiction on the reservation. So as a first step, um, under the law enforcement component, um, our CSKT tribal police met with um, our facilitator and began to, to assess their capacity to respond to MMIP cases. They identified local, state, and federal resources that were available. They identified non-law enforcement agencies who support and or contribute in any way to missing Indigenous persons cases. Uh, they clearly established what the MMI or the MIP problem looks like in our community specifically. And then they determined the gaps in their existing policies and training needs. Um, some of the considerations under that CSKT law enforcement um, meeting that were identified, um, obviously I think this is one across the board, but reporting barriers, um, fear of law enforcement involvement due to possible active warrants, biases or stigmas, uh, inadequate advocacy for families and communicating with law enforcement, uh, policy to address adult non-endangered transients who uh, regularly go missing, perhaps seasonal workers, um, the multiple runaway cases, which is probably the, what we deal with most here. 
um, how efforts with other law enforcement agencies can be improved upon, recognizing the need to put the protocols in writing for the purpose of continuity for, for new staff um, and or administration, and then the identification of training needs. The next part of the law enforcement um, meeting is what we refer to as the extended law enforcement meeting. Um, that included all of the local, state, and tribal agencies um, that I mentioned before. Um, we also had representation from federal agencies, including the FBI, the US Marshal Service, um, and the BIA Office of Justice Services. Um, they were also tasked with reviewing their response policies and resources, uh, assessed the communication and media processes, and then examined integration of effort and specialized resources. And the ultimate goal um, was to identify gaps and to generate, uh, generate solutions for law enforcement in general. So here are some of the accomplishments of that meeting and the combined efforts of all of those agencies. All of the law enforcement agencies agreed to work under one common, common missing indigenous persons response policy, which was really a, a huge, um, huge thing to tackle. And, and so we're proud to um, say that that's in place now. Um, they identified a new method of sharing information um, that allows all agencies to share through an electronic file system. All agencies just designated specific points of contact for MMIP and shared that master list amongst, um, amongst themselves. And last but not least, a, a new victim services policy was put in place to assist our missing persons investigator. And I'm gonna to touch more on that here in the next slide. So victim services was the component that I feel was the most um, difficult to work through. We began by first reaching out to our CSKT victim service program, which seemed like the most obvious um, place to begin, but quickly found that um, funding resources were limited um, to, to be able to serve only cases where domestic violence was, um, was a part of the case. And, and that's not always true in our MMIP cases. So they weren't able to step in and, and take over that whole component. Um, and so we then reached out to a local community organization um, and they said, well, we can do this training piece, we can do this part, we can do this, but we can't take on all of that either. So um, we're stuck now with, with two agencies who can only do um, pieces of what we really needed to cover under this. So realizing that um, we created what we call a missing persons liaison, an MPL, and that missing persons liaison then is able to coordinate between all relevant agencies, whether it's that community-based organization that we reached out to, or if it's our own victim services program, um, the missing persons liaison then can look at the case, um, case by case and determine what the needs are um, and then reach out to either, you know, if, if domestic violence is involved, then they could bring in our victim services. If not, then they would go to the community-based and bring in people as needed case by case. Um, they would also be able to communicate with the family on behalf of the missing persons investigator, um, allowing our uh, investigator then to just focus strictly on the investigation. Um, 
We hope to apply for a grant funding to make the missing persons liaison a paid position. Um, but we were, were, that's still in the works. Um, we had some pretty great groups participate uh, in this meeting for victim services com component. We invited the lifeguard group who is a, a trafficking um, organization here, Safe Harbor who deals in domestic violence, um, you know, our victim services program I mentioned. And so I have absolute confidence that those um, organizations will help when they can, as they can, in just in any way that they can. And so identifying them as partners um, is has been really helpful. Um, and it's just really great to realize that there's so many people with huge hearts for advocacy uh, related to MMIP. So during this meeting, we also felt that was that it was important to have family members of missing loved ones at the table. Um, so we had two family members who participated that day, both who had current missing loved ones. Um, one has since been found deceased and the other is still missing. Um, very helpful, can learn a lot from them. So please um, engage them too as you're able. They're the ones who have been through it and lived through it and, and they know what they need or how we can better address um, the issues. So I, I'm taking up more time than I anticipated. So I'm going to start picking and choosing here as we go, but um, some of the con considerations with a missing persons liaison, um, we want this person to be able to interact with families in a victim-centered, trauma-informed and culturally responsive way to demonstrate uh, respect and to build trust uh, with people when they're in that most vulnerable state. We want them to treat families with dignity and respect and truly listen to their concerns, provide them with information and provide education about the investigation process, uh, information about the search efforts or anticipated next steps um, and any approved case updates. We want them to honor the cultural tra traditions, ceremonies um, and belief systems or special family requests. And then understand the various impacts that families face when a loved one is missing um, to be cognizant of trauma impacting people and how it impacts people in different ways. Um, and then link, link those families with resources that they need for ba basic needs, um, maybe counseling or any other referrals as needed. The last component was uh, media and public communications. Um, and we were very fortunate to have our own uh, communications director already in place who took the lead on this. Um, piece. Uh, so in addition to prevention goals, the media and public communication guide provides suggested practices for communicating about active missing person cases at distinct and overlapping stages of initial reporting, search and investigation, rescue or recovery, and criminal prosecution. The primary goal is to produce timely and accurate accounts of law enforcement efforts and to seek public assistance where appropriate. To, re to rescue and recover missing subjects and then to seek justice for victims. And then the last piece was the community outreach um, document. And this is essentially just a, a guide of resources. We, it's a, a comprehensive listing of resources um, at the state uh, level, uh, tribal level and nationally that we may need to call upon in MMIP cases. It includes contact information, uh, 
for law enforcement agencies, cultural committees, domestic violence programs and coalitions, churches, tribal health agencies, um, anybody that we could think of. So this is a working document um, and it's as new resources become available, we add that. Um, and I would say that the whole tribal community response plan is a working document that we're gonna be learning as we go um, and making changes as necessary. And so this um, is our tribal community response plan. Um, due to some of the components, we've opted not to share it publicly in its entirety. Um, so uh, hence the, the brief highlights today. Um, however, we have shared it with several tribal nations who've requested it and will continue to do so um, because we wanna help. We don't want um, other uh, nations to have to uh, reinvent the wheel. If we're able to help and you can learn from our tribal community response plan and the process that we went through, we, we certainly welcome that. Um, we just have a, um, a non-disclosure agreement to sign, but um, not a big deal. But so willing to share that if anybody is interested. Um, and it was really a great process. It was a win-win for CSKT. If nothing else, it brought people to the table. It um, had everybody having conversations, looking at their own um, departments and, and identifying where maybe needs uh, weren't being met and, and addressing those gaps. So again, this is just our tribal community response plan team. And then my uh, almost final slide, um, for those who may be wanting to help some way in addressing MMIP, um, I would just ask that you that you watch out for one another's individuals. Be a voice for those who are afraid to speak up or for those who don't know how. Stress in your community, the need to report immediately when someone goes missing. Honor the lives of those who have been murdered or are still missing by listening to their stories um, from their friends or family. Um, join search groups as the need arises. Attend trainings or presentations so you are better equipped to help educate others. Publicly declare MMIW National Awareness Day on May 5th to help raise awareness, help sponsor billboards in your community, work with local indigenous communities to hold awareness and community healing events or vigils, meet with and or write to elected officials to let them know that you care about this issue and ask what they are doing to address it. And if you have students in your home, ask that they consider doing a research paper on MMIP. Let's get this um, topic into the schools and um, you know, they can be educating their peers by, by choosing to do a, a paper of some sort on this topic. And then most importantly, ask yourself what kind of assistance you would want if it were your child, your sibling, or your parent. So this is just in my closing slide. I just wanted to publicly thank Jen Buckley. She's with Tavera Photography. She's allowed me the use um, of her images. She takes these photos and then um, we have billboard messages across Montana with some of her photos. Um, and so she's available for that if anybody's interested in, in posting billboards. And that concludes my presentation. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to share with you today. I would open the floor to any questions. I'm sorry I rushed at the end and I'm sorry I went over my time, but. That's fine. Uh, Robin, do you want to uh, start with the question? Sure. Uh, it may not be so much a question 
but more like a comment. And of course, thank you so much for coming on. Everything that you shared with us is completely like up our alley in, in terms of like uh, Washington or the Yakima reservation area trying to develop their own task force and, you know, things like that. So this is all extremely helpful. Um, and I hope a lot of people tune in and, and listen in um, uh, once we post up on our RSS feed and everything. But uh, I wanted to say that in the beginning, you had mentioned uh, Jermaine and that there was a podcast searching for Jermaine. So we did have Connie Walker on. Uh, so again, I wanted to mention Jermaine and I think it was a good example and thank you for sharing that as well. Uh, for one, having Connie on was uh, extremely, we were grateful for that. We all did kind of a little bit of research. Some of us were able to listen to the podcast itself and I'm really glad I did because it really put in perspective all of the things that you had mentioned, you know, either were barriers or contributors to various MMIP cases. And so that being that there's also crossover, like not one is just going to be, uh, they're just runaways or they're just in Jermaine's case, from what I, I can remember is that it was uh, domestic violence uh, roped in with like a youth runaway. You know, she was literally across the street from her home, you know, things like that. Uh, and then later on, I think that something that was mentioned uh, by Connie in the podcast, she was missing. They finally had a passing of uh, domestic violence law about, you know, strangulation of a partner and having that hold more way or have more weight to it. And so uh, I just wanted to say that, uh, thank you so much. And that it's a great example of what uh, putting an actual story, like a, an in-depth story into why these legislations are important to have and, and why this research is important to have as well, shows how things can escalate and be inter interwoven. And so I wanna thank you so much for your presentation and that was really great, but I don't necessarily have any questions, but I know at some point, maybe after the show I will, and I'd be wanting to pick your brain a lot more, but. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I, Thank you so much. Yeah, I would just add to your statement, um, you know, about the story with Jermaine, the somebody's daughter and say her name, even just watching the trailers, um, I cried the first probably five times I watched those, I cried, you're hearing from family members, and you're feeling that um, you're able to empathize more when you can put when you can empathize with them and just put a name to those, right. uh, yeah. those that are missing it's so heartbreaking. And um, so I really encourage people to, to get engaged in that way by just learning those stories and, and watching those. I also think it's really great, not great, but it's a good example of how subtle some of these situations can come upon people, come upon uh, any person in terms of like, again, relationships, seeing red flags or seeing something out of the ordinary that seemed very subtle in the beginning and then escalated. Um, same thing with like these, like you said, runaway youth having them see that like, yeah, maybe being at a friend's house and then maybe not wanting to go home for whatever reason. And then, you know, that escalating into something else um, with that slow, subtle escalation um, kind of turning into them being more vulnerable or being in a more vulnerable situation than what they were before to always like keep a lookout for that. So um, thank you so much for sharing what you did. That was a really great presentation. Thank you. Uh, Robin, I had a question. Uh Ellie, this is Patsy White, but, um, and of course from 
white swan on the Yakima Reservation. And an educator, I really appreciate the comments that you made about the young people um, and some of the, the responses that you got from the youth. That's important. So thank you. And I think that's something you know, we might want to consider as well, just talking to the youth. And of course, there are various youth leadership um, organizations that exist. Um, and it's some work we're doing at the state level as well with students. Uh, but I, I did want to though focus on the families. Uh, you, it sounded like you surveyed the, the students somewhat, but I'm curious about the responses that you may have gotten from the parents and the grandparents, uh, the elders of family members that are missing and are murdered. What kinds of the feedback are you getting from family members? Because what we're doing is we're getting into a formal uh, process here. And I'm just curious if there's been any feedback from family members as well. We did get uh, good information both at the tribal level and at the federal level with those listening sessions we did. Um, seems to be the common theme about uh, law enforcement needing to be um, engaging in a better way, um, that families aren't, aren't left to feel like they don't matter. And you know, in some cases, the families are the ones who are doing the investigations and that's just unacceptable. And um, even at the tribal level here, um, for as amazing as our law enforcement is and as grateful as we are to them for the work they're doing, having those family members at the, the initial meeting here, our law enforcement learned a lot from them that they were feeling like they weren't being communicated with as often as they would have liked to be. And so we're, we're hoping that we're addressing that piece with that missing persons liaison or recognizing you know, that um, whether or not you have information, if the family can be talked to and, and um, and just reassured that they're doing this, this, and this, they're still working on this, this, or this. Um, but having that communication and having a person that they can call on anytime to say, what's happening today? Or what happened this week? Or how come they're not doing this? You know, um, So that was huge, trying to be uh, respect them enough to be keep them in the loop and communicating with them. Right. Um, so those were two of the, the things that we I've heard at, from both. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I realize that there are these adversarial relationships that continue to today and just uh, want it to, you know, just to get your feedback on that and just want to be mindful of particularly the families who are in those current situations now. Mm -hmm. and just my heart goes out to them as well. Um, several of the women who've been murdered and are missing are for me, immediate family members in Yakima. So, you know, uh, about five of them and a sister as well missing. So I can relate to the family members and what they're going through as well. Thank you. Yeah, well, prayers to you and your family and for all of those who are missing there. Um, I, I would add that um, sometimes with law enforcement, it's not always that they, aren't stepping up, sometimes they can't. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't wanna, I don't wanna confuse that there is a huge issue with law enforcement um, on both sides. Sometimes it is a case of 
they don't have the resources, they don't have the training, they have uh, very limited personnel with large land mass coverage expectations. Um, and so sometimes that's the issue, sometimes it's just they're not doing their job effectively. So um, yeah, I understand that. And yeah. you, you mentioned training. I don't want to go into this because there are others that want to ask questions, but would like to follow up on the training as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Go ahead, Patsy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, because this is one that I've given um, in testimony as well, and it has to do with training. Um, you know, the law enforcement is made up primarily of men. And, you know, I've been advocating for more women to be a part of law enforcement as well. And for the training to also include women to be engaged in that process. You showed one of the photos, I think, in there with, um, I don't know if it's your MMIP coordinator, uh, but it was all men, didn't really see any women there. And so, of course, I'm always looking for that. And, and, and of course, this is an issue even in you know, public education. I recognize it's predominantly women, but I just think that we need to make room for women as well. Thank you. And we welcome that opportunity here. We just hired a new uh, female officer. Um, and I think the issue um, along that line, too, is not only do we not have enough women, we have a lack of people interested in being in law enforcement in general, whether male or female. So I, I agree with you though, that we need, we need more women. Uh, thank you, Councilman Ellie Bundy. I uh, have a question related to one of the cases that you brought up early on, um, Case Sarah. And I noticed that there, we just passed an anniversary. Uh, and so I'll just read this from Dateline NBC. Uh, just to recap um, what you said in the beginning and then just for our viewers that are just tuning in. 18-year-old Kaysera stops pretty places, was found dead in Hardin, Montana. Two years have passed with no answers and her family continues to demand justice for Kaysera. This is from September 12th, 2021, Dateline NBC. They also tweeted, um, it seems that there was a uh, classification of her death as suspicious, but no cause of death. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And I just wonder if you can give an example of steps families take that are in this position as uh, the other co-hosts have mentioned, families often will be asking for justice or ask for something, but they're in this really weird place of not having a cause of death, not having a next step, uh, you know, so just examples that families have taken, either case series or just in general. And is there a task force role um, with these cases in Montana? I'm hopeful that case Sarah's case um, would be one that's investigated by the newly established MMU, the Missing and Murdered Unit. Um, they're still trying to get their feet under them um, with, we will, I just had a meeting with them this morning. We will have, 20 investigators, once all of their positions are filled, they're at 12 now. Um, but I'm hoping that case, Sarah's case rises to the top um, and can be addressed by that, by those investigators who can either work independently or as a task force. Um, I 
the request, of course, needs to come from the agency who is working the case, but maybe with um, family requesting that that can be uh, done. At our state task force level, we, we don't really get engaged, I guess, in that way. We could certainly make recommendations or requests or, um, you know, people do call on us to um, assist as we're able or at least to um, to bring issues up that we're able then to raise, help raise awareness to it or, or to um, just as we can, but we're a little bit tied as far as the task force level in that regard. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that, especially just being so new. It's just helpful to know that, you know, how things are working, but also I think just acknowledging to the families that there isn't very clear pathways because of multi-jurisdictional issues, um, both in Montana, in Washington, and nationwide when it deals with uh, tribal members. But there are resources to help to help figure that out, I guess I would say. Um, if a family feels like they're struggling, call, call one of us task force members or, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of advocates um, for MMIP, and I'm certain all of you ladies, just like myself, if I don't know the answer, I'm willing to make some phone calls and find out. Um, and so that's always an option too. Thank you. Uh, Lucy? So um, I just wanna say thank you for the amount of information. I feel like you've given me a different perspective as to how we can take some of our information and provide that and portray it on our social media or on our platforms. Um, and I think, you know, it, it will take some time to develop, but I'm also really excited to see what else happens with your guys' um, tribal response community plan. Um, I also wanted to just mention really quickly that um, season three of Up and Vanished has um, the disappearance of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. And so um, I'm not sure how many episodes they are into it, but it is done very well. And they're interviewing all of the people leading up to the disappearance of Ashley. Um, so my question is more around, um, it's definitely a concern for the mental health and wellness of everybody involved in the task force. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything incorporated into your guys' tribal response plan that includes something that um, assists you guys or provides you guys support, especially when you're working on these tough cases and you're also community members. And, um, you know, it, it just adds a lot of layers, you know, to you every day. And so like, and I just mean layers of stress. And so I am wondering if there's anything incorporated into your guys' plan that helps address that, like support for law enforcement, support for your liaisons, um, support for you guys as task members. And what does that look like, if any? Um, very good question. I'm gonna say no. Um, as far as our work group members here, our tribal work group members, they're primarily um, engaging in our monthly meetings and any kind of uh, fundraising opportunities that we're doing. We just recently raised um, just under $20,000 to establish a victim services assistance fund for our CSKT tribal members. And so they're doing kind of those types of things, fundraising, education awareness, 
um, our law enforcement would have their typical um, uh, avenues for that kind of assistance, regardless of what case they are working on, um, but nothing specific for MMIP. Um, at the state task force level, we're working on, uh, you know, the legislation, the policies, the trying to get to the root issues, not really seeing any case information specifically. Um, so don't really see the need, although it's heavy, you know, when you're, when you are in the community and you're hearing from families, it's, it's hard to hear those things. And it's, um, uh, I guess, so I know I, we don't have that in the plan, but not a bad idea. Thank you for that. Okay, I just want to check and see if there's any final thoughts to share. I guess I would just um, share that I'm available as a resource always. I've taken this on and will help in any way that I can um, at any time. So just, uh, you have my contact information, please don't hesitate to reach out, um, whether it's just to ask simple questions or, or anything, just please don't hesitate. Uh, we appreciate that, and especially your time. Uh, we also acknowledge that, you know, we had heard through the grapevine of your presentation, and so that chain of uh, the grapevine really works strongly in uh, Indian country. Uh, again, we are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. If at any point during this session you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Hotline, helpline, 1-844-7-NATIVE. Again, that's 1-844-762-8483 or chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. I'm Emily Washings. Thank you to co-hosts Robin, Lucy, and Patsy. And thank you to our guest councilwoman, Ellie Bundy. Again, this is War Cry Podcast. We have support from Native Women in Action, edited and produced by Robin Pibashi, music by Lee Sekakwaptiwa, and logo and shirts by John Only Schellenberger at Native Anthro.